so many aspects of the Buddhist teachings about the nature of suffering and the possibility of freedom resonate with our common sense understanding of ourselves and of the world, the importance of non-harming as the basic moral principle for people living in community, whether community of the forest refuge, local community, global community, the understanding that non-harming is the ground of living together harmoniously. The understanding that all things in the world, both inside ourselves and outside, are constantly changing. And that the more we hold on, the more we grasp at that which in its nature changes, the more we suffer. So these understandings and these teachings are not difficult to comprehend. It's sometimes difficult to apply perfectly, but they're in accord with the way we understand the world. But there's one teaching of the Buddha which offers a radically different understanding, a profoundly different way of understanding who we are. And it's one that challenges challenges our entire worldview. And this is the deep understanding and realization of anatta, or selflessness. The realization, the experience of the empty, insubstantial, selfless nature of all experience, of all dhammas. This is the great liberating jewel of the Buddha's teachings this understanding of selflessness. But for many people, it's also the most puzzling. Now, we speak about impermanence, there are nods of agreement. Speak about suffering, bigger nods of agreement. (laughs) But when we talk about selflessness, often it starts uh, to be puzzling to us. It doesn't quite make sense. If there's no self, who came to the forest refuge? Who came here? If there's no self, who makes effort? Within the Buddhist teaching, if there's no self, who gets reborn? Who gets enlightened? If there's no self, who gets angry? Who falls in love? Who has all the unique memories? that arise. So these are very real questions, I think, for most people as we begin to explore what selflessness means. But as the observing power of our minds gets stronger, we begin to see that the self, the I, is not what we imagined it to be we find that it is not the body, and it's not the thoughts, and it's not emotions. It's not even awareness. Now, as the power of our observation grows stronger, 
we begin to see that self, the notion of self, is an idea. It's a concept. It's a mental construct. It's a fabrication of mind. And when we see this, it's both a surprise, since our whole lives have revolved around the sense of self. So when we see that it's just a mental concept or construct, it's both a great surprise and it can be a great relief. You know, all those troubling aspects of our personalities, as well as those few wonderful qualities, they don't belong to anyone. They're simply thoughts and feelings arising impersonally out of changing conditions. It's not that they're not there, they are arising, but they're not I, they're not mine, they're not myself. So tonight I'd like to explore how the mind goes about constructing this concept of self. How does it create it, if it's a fundamental illusion? How it creates the construct of self and how we can free ourselves from this illusion. So we back up and we take a look at what is actually happening in our experience. When we look at our minds, we see that mind is the basic faculty of cognition, the basic knowing faculty. Now, when we look at this knowing, we see that it is clear, it's invisible, it's lucid, it's unobstructed, it has many of the qualities of space, of empty space, and yet it's not space because there is also the knowing aspect. So this is the nature of consciousness, the knowing faculty. But the mind includes something besides this simple knowing. And in the the Buddhist Abhidhamma, the Buddhist psychology, these other factors are described as, in in the Pali, the word is jetasika, or mental quality, mental factors. You know, and as you've experienced and continue to, in every moment, there's the knowing of some object, the simple knowing, and that knowing is colored by a variety of different mental factors in different combinations. So sometimes there's mindfulness, sometimes there's concentration, sometimes there's aversion, sometimes there's desire, sometimes there's joy, sadness, happiness... There are all of these mental qualities which arise in each moment in different combinations and they color our experience of that moment. Some of these mental factors, of these jetasikas, some result in happiness. So the Buddha called them wholesome. Some of these mental qualities, mental factors, lead to suffering. So the Buddha called those unwholesome. It's a very pragmatic designation. You know, it's, not, it's not some 
kind of divine statement about the nature of things. It's a very pragmatic look. What leads to happiness? What leads to suffering? So there's the natural purity, the natural openness, the simple knowing quality of mind. That's consciousness. And then there are all of these different mental factors in the soup that color the mind, color the knowing in one way or another. Now, there's one mental factor in particular, which I'll talk a lot about tonight, which is common to all moments of experience. So it's called a common mental factor. It's arising in each moment. And when it is out of balance, keeps us imprisoned in the world of concepts. It keeps us imprisoned in our conventional view of self, of I. And so it's important to understand how this particular mental factor works. And this is the factor of perception. And perception has a very specific meaning in the Abhidhamma, in the Buddhist psychology. The Pali word is sanya. The function of perception is to recognize particular objects of experience by picking out their distinguishing marks. It then creates a concept through naming it and then remembers, it stores that name in memory for use when a similar object arises in the future. So all of this is included in perception. It's recognition through the distinguishing characteristics of something. It's creating the concept for it. It's storing it in memory. You know, we look around. Man, woman, tree, building, house, car. All of that. Everything in the world we recognize. We put a name on it. We store the name And then we retrieve that. We use that same name when a similar experience arises. For example, we hear a sound. I don't know whether they're crickets or cicadas. (laughs) Let's say bird. (laughs) Hear a sound. Bird sound. You know, we hear a sound. We recognize a particular quality. We name it bird, and then we remember that name. And the next time we hear that sound, oh, that's a bird. Now, in perception, this recognition, naming, remembering, when perception is in balance with mindfulness... And in some sense, this is a key aspect of our practice. Then our surface recognition, a bird, a house, a man, a woman, our surface recognition and naming becomes a frame around the experience, allowing for a deeper observation. The perception 
provides a frame for whatever it is that we're experiencing. And just like a frame around a picture can help us to see or focus on the picture more clearly, that's the function of the perception. This is precisely how the tool of mental noting works. And when we're noting different things that are arising, the noting is not mindfulness. The noting is perception. We're recognizing each object. But perception is one of the conditions for mindfulness to arise. We're seeing something clearly, we're recognizing it, we're giving it a name, but that all has to be in the service of a deeper, more penetrating observation. Otherwise, we simply stay looking at the frame and we actually miss the picture. The wonderful line from the book Hours, The Hours by Michael Cunningham, and he talks about dropping into that level of deeper experience underneath perception. He says, everything in the world has its own secret name. A name that cannot be conveyed in language, but is simply the sight and feel of the thing itself. Well, that's mindfulness. Perception names it, and then we open to the secret name of things, which cannot be conveyed in language, which is the sight or feel of the thing itself. Now, when there's perception without mindfulness, and for most people, this is the way we usually navigate in the world. Usually, we're living in the world of concept. We're living in the world of perception. When there's perception without mindfulness, we know and remember only the name of the thing, the surface appearance. You know, an object arises, we give a name, and if we're not mindful, if we don't bring mindfulness there, we become limited by that concept. Our, ex- our experience of what it is is limited or confined or colored by the concept that we give it. Just an example of this. It actually was a story told to me by a yogi in the three-month retreat. Uh, was it the last year or the year before? They had heard me give this uh, talk on concepts and perception. And they described a situation where they were moving into a new house. And as they were moving in, they noticed this nest... Uh, they saw these birds flying around uh, the house, and it was a big bird. It might have been, you know, a heron or some unusual kind of bird, and they were really happy. You know, they thought it was really auspicious. You know, these beautiful birds were right by the house. And they moved in, 
and they heard this chirping sound from the basement. And it made them so happy because they thought, oh, you know, there's a nest in the basement and little, little birds, birdlings, <laughs> you know, <laughs> in the nest, chirping away. And every time they, they heard the sound, they got so happy. And so then a week goes by, or I don't know how long, two weeks, and some repair person is in the house fixing something up in the basement. And when he comes up, he says, you know, you ought to get your smoke alarm fixed. It's, it's beeping in the basement. As soon as they were putting the concept smoke alarm rather than chirping bird, it drove them crazy. They had to get it fixed. You know, they couldn't live with it. Nothing changed except their concept. Through the filter of one concept, it made them really happy. Through the filter of another concept, made them quite unhappy. This is not an unusual state of affairs. Because most of the way we are in the world, most of the way we're relating in the world, is through the filter of our concepts. And it's because perception is stronger than mindfulness. There is the surface recognition We name whatever it is and then get caught in the name. There's a poem by a Polish poet, a Nobel Prize winning poet. Uh, Might not get the name pronounced correctly. This Lauer Simborska. And it's a wonderful poem. I'll just read part of it because it It's so much about just this creation of the world through concept. It's called view with a grain of sand. We call it a grain of sand, but it calls itself neither grain nor sand. It does just fine without a name. The window has a wonderful view of the lake, but the view doesn't view itself. It exists in this world, colorless, shapeless, soundless, odorless, and painless. The lake's floor exists floorlessly, and its shore exists shorelessly. The water feels itself neither wet nor dry, and all this beneath the sky by nature skyless, in which the sun sets without setting at all and hides without hiding behind an unminding cloud. A second passes, a second second, a third, but they are three seconds only to us. Time has passed like a messenger with urgent news, but that's just our simile, Time, the character is invented. His haste is make-believe. His news inhuman. So we live in the world of mind-created concepts and then actually believe these concepts to be real. 
we can see this tendency to solidify our view of the world through concepts in many different areas of life. And sometimes it's with very harmful consequences. This is not a trivial matter. This imbalance of perception and mindfulness where we're lost in the world of our own constructs has tremendous ramifications. I'll just give a few examples. We're quite attached to the concept the concept of place. You know, the idea that the earth is divided into separate countries and nations and states and whatever the division is. We see the consequence in strong nationalism. You know, and all the wars have been fought. How many wars have been fought over boundaries? Years ago, a friend of mine, this was still in the days back in the 60s and 70s when you could, when you could uh, travel overland from Europe to India. This was a Greek friend who was describing her trip, and she was describing a border crossing between Russia and Iran. And she said that it was in the middle of no place. It was just dry, arid, desert-like country. And there was a riverbed, an empty riverbed, dry riverbed. And over the riverbed was a big bridge. And in the middle of the bridge, there was a big iron gate. And half the bridge was red and half the bridge was green. Just picture the scene. It's a bit like a Fellini movie. There's the middle of no place. There's nothing around. Plopped in the middle of this scene is this big bridge. And in the middle of the bridge, a gate locked. She needed to cross the border. You know, so guards from one side came, guards from the other, they opened the gate, she crossed the border, she got the stamp in her passport. And yet if she hadn't done it, you know, because people have invested so much in the reality of that concept of border, of country, there would have been a lot of trouble. But it's clearly a mental construct, it's something we have created And you probably remember when the astronauts were first going into space, how the reports from so many of them were almost of these mystical-like experiences of seeing the unity of the Earth, of the planet Earth, of the globe hanging in space and the beauty of it, without boundary, without division, without these concepts coming into play. This concept of place, this concept of ownership, you know, we have the idea that we own things. And sometimes this concept leads to huge, huge suffering in the world. You know, when we think in this country of the legacy of slavery, both the experience at the time and the, the legacy of it, the idea that one human being could own another. Huge, huge suffering that still ripples throughout our society. You know, the legacy of colonialism, where one country thinks it can own another country, you know, and the huge amount of suffering that has resulted. 
And then we take it down to a more personal level, and perhaps it seems in comparison somewhat more trivial, but from the inside can be just as uh, tightening. I had this one experience this years ago in India. I was practicing in Bodh Gaya <coughs> at the Burmese Vihar. And at that time, you know, there were some these very small huts in the garden. Most of the huts were six by six, but they made a special one for me six by seven <laughs> so I could fit in it. I mean, it's completely basic. I mean, it was just a brick hut with a dirt floor, and it just had a canvas flap for, you know, for a door. So I was sitting on my bed in my hut, and this cat wanders in and jumps up on my lap while I was meditating in my hut. <laughs> so I kind of tossed the cat out. About 15 seconds later, <laughs> it came right back in, sat down on my lap, you know, tossed it. This went on over and over again. My mind was getting more and more irritated. You know, doesn't this cat know that this is my hut? <laughs> so this went on. I kept tossing it out. It kept coming back. Obviously, it didn't know. It didn't have such a concept. So at a certain point, I just had to surrender because there was nothing to do. You know, there was just a canvas flap on the door. So finally, you know, it came in, sat down on my lap, and I just accepted. I surrendered to the fact I let go of the concept that it was my hut. As soon as I let go, it jumped off my lap, out the door, and didn't come back. <laughs> you know, it was the Buddha coming, <laughs> coming to visit. All the suffering there came out of the notion that somehow that space was mine. You know, it was a certain claim of ownership. The Buddha said that we can't even claim to own this body and mind. To claim this body and mind as being self much less anything else. So this concept of place, we get attached to that. This concept of ownership, we get attached to that in various ways. Just imagine how your mind would be if you came into the hall and somebody was sitting in your place, you know, where you sit every day. I'm sure there would be a moment so in subtle ways, as well as those more global ways, it's a powerful conditioning. Even more immediate, a concept that has tremendous impact on our lives. Huge. We live in the construct of this, of this mental fabrication a good part of the time. And that is the concept of time, the concept of past and future. How much of today have you been lost one way or another in thoughts of past and thoughts of future? And yet when we look carefully, and I invite you to do this because it's tremendously liberating, and it doesn't take any special powers to do this. This insight is very accessible if we simply pay attention. It's asking ourselves how it is 
that we ever experience the past? How is it that we ever experience the future? And we see that always it's as a thought or feeling in the moment. And I was sitting here in this beautiful hall, feeling the breath, minding our own business, and memories, recollections, remembrances, arise in the mind, if we're not mindful, the mind jumps in, creates a concept past, and then tosses it behind us as if the past is a reality back there, and we're forgetting that all we're actually experiencing is as a thought in the moment. That's all that's happening. And the same thing with future. We create whole scenarios of future of anticipation, of planning. And sometimes they're happy scenarios, sometimes they're really dreadful scenarios. And we start believing that the future is a reality out there. We've created this concept, invested a huge reality in it, forgetting that it is only a thought right now. Past and future as concepts are huge. They're like this huge weight that we carry. A thought in the moment is exceedingly light. It weighs almost nothing. Past and future are simply thoughts in the moment. We can take it one step further with this concept of time can look very directly at how our concept of past and future impacts our experience in the moment. Now you're sitting here at the Forest Refuge, and whether it's for two weeks or three months or a year, however long you've enlisted for, you know, on a good day the mind is concentrated, calm, peaceful, and you think of the time, you know, you'll be sitting here, oh, I wish I could stay the rest of my life. On another day, you're restless, your body hurts, you're agitated, and you think of how long you're going to be, oh, I'll never make it. In both cases, it's just a thought. It's just a thought in the moment. And yet, it conditions how we feel. It's very freeing, very freeing to see how time is a creation of our own minds. Not only past and future. And here the Buddha said something that really could awaken us. You know, if we hear it deeply, It's not only not getting lost or attached to past and future, it's also letting go of the concept of present moment. So much of the teaching language is be in the present, live in the present, be mindful of the present. And as the Buddha is saying, let go of that as well. This is from the Dhammapada. Now if you do this, this is your chance to Get enlightened.
let go of the past, let go of the future, let that one go, let go of the present. Let go of the past, let go of the future, let go of the present. And cross over to the further shore. With the mind wholly liberated, you go beyond birth and death. So it's right here. As long as we're caught in the concept of time, caught in the past, caught in the future, caught in the present, we haven't crossed over to the further shore. So it's right now. It's every moment. That moment of letting go. There's concepts of place, of ownership, of time. Lots of concepts we create of self-image. You know, so much of our dukkha, so much of the suffering we have in our lives is because we have created different ideas of who we are, of how we present ourselves to ourselves and to others. As soon as we identify with any self-image or role in the world, it's already a contraction. It's already a limitation. Now, sometimes it's worldly self-images of how we think we are in the world. Very... uh, an important person, an unimportant person, successful, not successful. You know, we identify with some professional role or lack of professional role. We just create this story of ourselves and then get lost or limited by that story. Could be spiritual self-image. And this is one that plagues yogis relentlessly. You know the good yogi, bad yogi syndrome? It's just all of this self-judgment, self-evaluation. Things are going well. Oh, I'm such a good yogi. Things are going badly. You know, restless. Agitated. Oh, I'm such a bad yogi. And we're like a yo-yo in terms of our own self-assessment. Can we let go of all of those self-images and simply come back to the experience of the moment? Sometimes we get caught in images that other people are trying to project onto us. So we need to be careful with that, not buying in. When we first opened IMS in the first year or two, we had one person in the kitchen uh, who was a great, fiery southern woman, beautiful and just full of fire. Uh, And in those early days, we were still trying to figure everything out, and people would always be, whatever their comments were about the food or how it should be or whatever, they would always be just, you know, telling this woman, Jeannie. And at a certain point, 
she just announced to the whole staff, I am not the kitchen. <laughs> I am not the kitchen. You know, but people were just, that's the role they were putting onto her. But she had enough insight and wisdom not to take it. So we need to see, you know, and even in the subtlety of a retreat like this, you know, the internal self-images that arise, whether worldly or spiritual, and to see that they're only mental constructs. It's all they are. Other concepts which we really get caught in, limited by. Concepts of age, of gender, of race, of culture. We might think, well, those aren't concepts. You know, that's, they're for real. How old is your breath? You know, you're sitting here, in, out, rising, oh, yeah, my breath is 59 years old. It doesn't make any sense. It's just a concept. What color is your mind? White, black, brown. Pain in the knee, pain in the back. Is it male, is it female? It's not to say that these concepts don't point to certain differences of experience. Obviously, they do. But if we get caught and identified with the concept, we miss the underlying reality that is in common. We get caught or identified with any of these concepts, it becomes the cause of so much divisiveness in the world. Now, when we really look about at the suffering in the world, whether it's the suffering of racism or sexism or ageism or imperialism or whatever, whatever the ism, and we explore what the root source is of all of that suffering and conflict, it really all comes down to otherism. It's just when we see someone else as other, when we get lost in that concept, so then it leads to all of those kinds of discrimination, of prejudice, of exploitation. The concepts that are arising in our minds and through which we see the world are very powerful. The deepest conditioning we have and the concept which is at the root of the suffering. And this is the core, the core issue in our practice is the attachment we have to the concept of self. To the idea, to the construct, the mental fabrication that there is someone behind experience to whom it's all happening. We create a reference point 
of observation. We give it a name, Joseph, self, I. And then we live, we become identified with that reference point. We start living in that mental creation of self. But I think there's a fundamental question here that arises. If self, if I, is a construct, is a mental fabrication, why is it so deeply conditioned? I mean, this is not a superficial habit of our minds. We are living in this concept of self, of I. Our whole world revolves around this concept of I and self. So why is it so deeply conditioned? It's conditioned in us, and here we're coming back to the very beginning of the talk, it's conditioned in us because of one deeply habituated perception. And the Buddha highlighted this. He he actually called it an hallucination of perception because it's a perception that is not true and because it's not true is the source of so much suffering for us. And that is the perception we have, or we might say the hallucination of perception that we have of the solidity of things. We mostly live in a world of solid objects, solid things, whether it's physical objects or the solidity of our bodies. And as long as this perception of solidity is not challenged, as long as we're just going along, coasting along in this conventional view of the world, and it is the, this is how the world operates, as long as it remains unchallenged, it becomes impossible to see and to penetrate deeply into the impermanent, insubstantial nature of it all. So there are two reasons why we have this hallucination of, of solidity, this hallucination of perception. One is because of the rapidity of change. Things are changing so quickly that we're not seeing it. You know, so it's just as a few examples, it's like going to the movies. The frames of film are moving so quickly, we don't see the movie as separate frames. We're not seeing it in that way. We're seeing it as just a continuous, uninterrupted flow. If you twirl a torch around, you see a circle of light, and that's the perception. It seems like one, one continuous thing. Well, as we practice, what I call the NPMs, starts to go up. And the NPMs are noticings per minute. 
You know, in the beginning, our NPMs are pretty low. Maybe we have five NPMs or ten NPMs. You know, in breath, out breath. You know, pain. But as we keep practicing, and our minds get quieter, the NPMs go from five or ten. I don't know, to a hundred, to a thousand. The Buddha said there were seventeen trillion mind moments, just in a like that. So things are happening very quickly, and either we may not get to seventeen trillion, but as our mind gets quieter, we really are seeing the continually fast, rapid, changing nature of everything. So this is one way that the solidity, the perception of solidity begins to vanish. The other reason for this hallucination of perception is that in our normal lives, we are viewing things from a distance. We're not really observing closely. And so we don't see the composite nature of experience. As an example, you look out you know, the window in the daytime, and you look in the distance, and you see a mass of color, you know, we create a concept of forest, a hill, you know, a mountain. And it's just kind of one thing. Oh, the hill is over there. And then we look more closely and we see that this mass of color, we come in closer, it's really individual trees. And then we come in closer and we see individual parts of trees, you know, and leaves and shrub and stem and roots. And then we look even closer and it breaks into even smaller pieces And finally, we see there's no tree at all. That what we're calling tree, it's just a concept. Implying a certain solidity, we look closer, the concept dissolves, and we see it's just a a mosaic of different elements. And then we look microscopically. And a whole other world appears, and then each of those elements disappears. We see that there's not much there when we look very closely, and this is the power of our practice, the power of concentration, the concentrated mind. It's like this magnifying uh, ability. We really see deeply and closely. We're attached to and identified with the concept of self, of I, because we rely on and are satisfied with a superficial perception. You know, we all have this superficial perception. Look in a mirror, that's me, that's Joseph. And every day it looks more or less the same. The superficial perception keeps us on the level of the hallucination of solidity. But when we bring mindfulness into the picture, what mindfulness is doing in Upandita's language, it's plunging into the object. It's not staying on the surface. We are really entering into the experience deeply and fully and completely. And as we do that, we really see that what we're calling self 
is just a very rapidly changing constellation of mind and body elements. And we see them all as being empty, as being impermanent, as being insubstantial. There's nothing much there. Now, you probably have seen it in the walking meditation. It's very, it becomes very apparent. In the beginning, there's the sense of a body walking. You know, and it's kind of some sense of, of solidity. I'm walking. But as we drop into it, we begin to go from the sense of the body, maybe just to the looser sense of, the, of a certain form, you know, of leg or foot, And then as we go even deeper, even the form disappears. There's no leg, there's no foot, there's no back, there's no front. As we drop in, really, it's just momentary changing sensations. That's all that's there. Everything else is a concept which we've created. We can see this same sense of solidifying things on a more subtle level. We can see it with our body. We can also see it with thoughts. Notice the difference when you're lost in a thought, when you're lost in some mind drama, you know, thought about past, about future, about whatever. Can you recognize the solidification of the concept of self when you're lost in that thought? There is this. There's that strong sense of I. We're lost in the content. We're lost in the story. And yet in the moment that we bring a keen mindfulness to that perception, now the perception recognizes what our daydream is about. We're not unconscious. But we're not mindful. We recognize what it is, but when we bring mindfulness to it, mindfulness to the fact that we're thinking, it's like we step out of the story, out of the content. When we bring mindfulness to that perception, the whole sense of self dissolves. Again, all of this is an, an invitation for you to look, to investigate for yourselves. Right? It's, not, it's not some philosophical system that you need to believe. It's all about investigating how the sense of self is created through identification with concepts, with ideas. We see this also with the emotions. You know, we can recognize the different emotions that we have of sadness, of anger, of fear, you know, of loneliness, of happiness, of joy. So the perception may be there. Without mindfulness, we get caught in the identification with that story, that emotional story creating the sense of self, the concept of self. I'm angry, I'm happy, I'm sad, I'm fearful, I'm... 
And yet as soon as we balance that perception with mindfulness, we see that the emotion itself is simply a constellation of experience arising out of momentary conditions. It's like a cloud forming in the sky out of conditions. Conditions change, the cloud dissipates. The emotions don't belong to anyone. They each simply functioning in their own way. Fear fears. It's not I'm afraid. The I is extra. Fear is doing its thing. It's fearing. Love loves. Happiness happies. Sadness sads. Each emotion is simply arising, doing its thing, expressing its nature, changing, and fading away. They have no roots. They have no home. They don't belong to anyone. But in order to see that, we need to frame the experience with perception, we recognize it, even name it, but then go deeply into its nature. And that's the role of mindfulness. On the most subtle level, we need to cut through our identification with awareness itself, with consciousness itself. Because even as we might see the changing, insubstantial nature of the physical sensations and of thoughts and emotions, it's very easy to reify or solidify the identification with the knowing, with the observer, with the witness. It's as if we make a thing out of awareness. and then create the concept of self in our identification with that. It's letting go of any reference point of observation. The reason all of this is so important it's not, as I said, it's not, this is not just a kind of philosophical treatise. The Buddha said that two things in this world are permanent. Nibbana and concepts. Our concepts of things don't change. The word doesn't change. Man today, man tomorrow, man the next day. As long as we are not distinguishing between the concepts about experience and our direct awareness of the experience, we are unable to see the empty, impermanent, insubstantial nature. We are caught in the hallucination of permanence, of solidity, through our attachment to these concepts. So it becomes 
crucial that we see how it's working in our minds. So I'd like to close with a teaching that, again, is one of the Buddha's most direct pointing out of the liberated mind. You know, it's just, it, it sums up in a very concise fashion everything I've been talking about. And the story behind this, and it's one you're probably familiar with, you know, there was this one, uh, this one man who was very anxious to get the teachings. You know, he had traveled all across India to meet the Buddha. He finally met the Buddha uh, one day when he was on alms round, collecting food, and he said, please give me the teachings. And the Buddha said, wait, let's go back to the monastery and I'll teach you. And the man was very insistent. He said, no, please teach me now. Yeah, and again, the Buddha said, let's go back to the monastery. Again, you know, so the proverbial three times, you, know, you may die, I may die, please give it to me now. So the Buddha, he was, there he was in the middle of the road with his you know, bowl full of uh, alms food. So he had to give something very concise. It's really concise. And it, again, it has this power to jolt us into awakening. He said, in the scene, there is only the scene. In the herd, there is only the herd. In the sensed, there is only the sensed. In the cognized, there is only the cognized. This is the secret name of things underneath the language. In seen, only the seen. In the heard, only the heard. In the sensed, only the sensed. In the cognized, only the cognized. Thus you should see that indeed there is no thing here. This bahiya is how you should train yourself. Since bahiya there is for you in the seen, only the seen, in the heard, only the heard, in the sensed, only the sensed, in the cognized, only the cognized, and you see that there is no thing here, you will therefore see that indeed there is no thing there. As you see that there is no thing there, you will see that you are therefore located neither in the world of this nor in the world of that nor in any place between the two. This alone is the end of suffering. you see that there is no thing here, you will therefore see that indeed there is no thing there. And as you see that there is no thing there, you will see that you are therefore located 
neither in the world of this, nor in the world of that, nor in any place between the two. This alone is the end of suffering. So let's sit for a few moments, abiding nowhere. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.